This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled "The Finite and the Infinite," recorded March eighth, nineteen ninety-two, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. At the heart of all mystical traditions is a paradox. That's why it's called mysticism. It's a mystery, and this has been expressed. This paradox in many, many ways. It takes many forms. And I want to start by just giving you a sample from three very different traditions. The first is from the Taoist tradition, and this is from Lao Tzu's book, the Tao Te Ching, which is the seminal work of Taoism. And he's describing what he means by the Tao, this mysterious Tao. He says actually it doesn't have a name, but he'll call it the Way, just so he can talk about it. The Way is empty. Yet use will not drain it. It is empty without being exhausted. The more it works, the more comes out. Interesting about that. Two things. First of all, this way, this ultimate, this foundation of all things, is itself empty. And yet things are produced, and yet it doesn't diminish the way. It's not exhausted. Endlessly, it could produce things, and it would not be exhausted. Silent and void, it stands alone and does not change, goes round and does not weary. Silent, void, it stands alone, being singular, and doesn't change, and yet it goes around. How could something not change and yet move? Change and changelessness. It is capable of being the mother of the world. I know not its name, so I style it the way. This mysterious emptiness, he says, is the mother of the world of all things. In Chinese, they say of the myriad creatures. Now, how does it produce the myriad creatures? The way begets one. One begets two. Two begets three. Three begets the myriad creatures. It's already mathematical here, by the way. Notice this. People think, oh, they like Taoism because it's not, you know, rational and mathematical like Western thought. It's quite mathematical, actually. In the in the、uh, in the true primitive sense of mathematics, and I don't mean primitive by being being negative at all, but in the in the simplest essence of what mathematics is. The way begets one, one begets two, two begets three, three begets the myriad creatures. There's this idea almost of、uh, a division here, kind of like cell division, maybe. And yet, the way remains unchanging, doesn't change, and inexhaustible. In Buddhism. There's a very closely related idea, and that's the idea of the relationship of emptiness and form. In Buddhism, they say the truth about all things, all forms, is that they are empty, meaning empty of any independent self-existence. So you have then this idea of form and emptiness, which plays a very prominent role in Buddhism, and yet. To nail down the paradox, they also go on to say, "But emptiness is not other than form, and form is not other than emptiness." So you shouldn't think of them as two things, separate and divided.
Let me go on to another tradition here. This is Kashmir Shovism, which is a branch of Hinduism, quite different from Taoism. And in Kashmir Shovism, the world is thought of as being produced by, or coming out of, or created by Paramashiva. Paramashiva is not the form of the god Shiva that you might worship. Have you ever seen statues of Shiva in his dancing form? The world is Shiva's dance, is the image, and Shiva twirls and dances all this world, and yet Shiva is the still point, the center of it all. And the expressions on these statues are just beautiful. It's just absolute calm, slight smile. That's the form of Shiva, the god Shiva. Paramashiva is before form. Paramashiva is not a he or she or it, even though this translator translates it as he, in spite of the fact he himself says, the translator, that Paramashiva has no gender. Paramashiva manifests himself, or which is the same thing, he manifests his Shakti as the universe. Shakti is the power of creation. In the beginning, there's just Paramashiva, and then in the process of this manifestation, they sort of divide, and now we think of Shiva and Shakti. Shakti is the, the power of manifestation, and Shiva then remains the background, so to speak, the unchanging background. Paramashiva manifests himself, or which is the same thing, he manifests his Shakti as the universe. And he does this of his own free and independent will, without the use of any other material save his own power and in himself as the basis of the universe. In other words, he doesn't go find a lump of clay someplace and, and create the universe out of it. It all comes out of Shiva. It's all made of Shiva, if you like. Thus, in reality, the universe is only an expansion of the power of Parama Shiva himself or to put it perhaps more correctly, of Paramashiva in his aspect as Shakti, by which aspect he both becomes and pervades the universe thus produced, while yet he remains the ever-transcendent Chaitanya. Chaitanya means, uh, it's hard to translate, but the closest would be perhaps consciousness, a pure experiencer, but without the idea of a thing being back there, pure awareness, pure consciousness. So while he pervades the universe, yet he remains the ever-transcendent consciousness without in any way whatsoever being affected by the manifestation of the universe. Again, this is paradoxical. How could Paramashiva produce all this, full of change and becoming and power and energy and so forth, and yet remain completely unaffected? And it's not produced from outside. You might say, I could take a hunk of clay, or let's say something's more animated. Let's say I um, start a pinball machine going, and then sit back and watch the balls bounce around. This is sort of the, the idea of the Newtonians, you know, the clockwork universe that God wound it up and then sat back. But this isn't true. All this is Paramashiva. It's not something that he set up and started going and then sits back and watches. And yet, in spite of all this change, Paramashiva is not affected. You see, this is a different language, but it's very similar to the ideas of Taoism. <coughs> the way which begets one, two, three in the myriad creatures, and yet itself remains unchanged. 
The same paradox is being expressed here. Now let's go on to the Christian tradition. Exoterically, Christians think more crudely of God being a kind of creator God that creates this universe, then sort of sits back and manages it a little bit. But the universe is separate from God. But this is not the way Christian mystics conceive it. And let's turn to one example of a Christian mystic. This is Dionysius, the Arapagate, who is one of the founders of Christian mysticism. The term divine differentiations is given to the benevolent procession of the supreme Godhead. This Godhead flows over in shares of goodness to all, and it becomes differentiated in a unified way. It is multiplied and yet remains singular. It is dispensed to all without ceasing to be a unity. Since God is a being in a way beyond being, he bestows existence upon everything and brings the whole world into being, so that his single existence is said to be manifold by virtue of the fact that it brings so many things to being from itself. This is exactly Kashmir Shaivism. God brings the world forth through this process of differentiation from himself, not from getting some clay outside someplace. Yet, he remains one amid the plurality, unified throughout the procession, and full amid the emptying act of differentiation. Interesting. This emptying was close to Taoism. Transcendently, he surpasses the being of everything, even in the unique leading of all things into being, and in the ceaseless flow of his undiminished bounties. So, the more you use him, he's never exhausted. He is one and dispenses his oneness to every part of the universe, as well as to its totality. He is one in an unchanging and transcendent way. Like the Tao, which brings forth the myriad creatures and yet itself never changes. Like Paramashiva, who manifests this whole world through this power of Shakti and yet itself remains transcendent and unaffected. He is not one part of a plurality, nor yet a total of parts. So you could never go point to God as one part of the universe, even a very high part and say, well, that's God up there apart from all this. And yet God is not the totality of all things. You can't just say, well, let's just take all the stars and galaxies and everything and add them all up and that'll be God. God transcends all these things. If all these things vanished, God would still be there. You see how the three here are all talking really about the same thing in different language? down to the details of how the concepts are worked out, of the expressions that are used. This is what I say when mystics are all saying the same thing. I don't just uh, mean that they all have a sort of a wishy-washy idea, well, we're all one and we're all part of God and so forth. If you read through carefully the teachings, you see they're all pointing to the same truth. So, what does it mean that God, or consciousness, or Tao, or Shiva, whatever term any tradition wants to use, that the ultimate reality is both changing and unchanging, 
both pervades the whole world and yet, in a certain sense, transcends the whole world. What does this mean to us? We believe, and not just believe intellectually, but experience ourselves to be some sort of finite form in this multiplicity of forms. We believe and experience ourselves to be one thing or something in a universe of multiplicity. And this is the root cause of our suffering. This is what puts us in conflict. This is what creates our fear. If we are one thing in all this multiplicity of things, which we know from experience are arising and passing, arising and passing, then we must be doomed to arise and pass. Then we are threatened. Then we have to be defensive. Then we have to guard against the other. And no matter how much we guard against the other, the threats ward them off and so forth, we all know that this is just temporary that ultimately the worms are going to get you. As the Hindus like to say, you know, the body is nothing but food. Think about that. That's all the body is, is food. It's all the things you've eaten. So this problem, this paradox, isn't just a question of philosophy. It relates very much to our own lives. Who are we in this world? What are we in this world? So I thought today we'd draw on a little mathematics to help us. And although there's a tremendously profound connection between mathematics and mysticism, that's not the subject of today's talk, and I'm only using this by way of a metaphor, an example, to tease our minds into trying to grapple with this paradox. The paradox is there, by the way, to grapple with. It's not there to either just say, oh, okay, so the world's a paradox. That's the point of a paradox. If you're not willing to grapple with it, you can't transcend it. You can't see what's at the base of it. So, let's start by uh, taking two terms from mathematics, the relationship of infinity to finitude. Try to imagine infinite space. Just take a moment, close your eyes if you like. Can you imagine infinite space? Can anybody imagine it? Can you imagine it? Through movement. I'm moving through it. Okay. If you were moving through it, how far, or how much time, should I say, would it take to move through it to encompass it all? Well, it would take forever. Right. So you haven't really imagined it. You've moved through it, and you've said to yourself, well, if I keep going, I will encompass all infinity. Right? But you can't actually do it. Well, you do it in time. Yeah. But since only a few seconds passed. That was a little portion of it. <laughs> a little portion of Well, okay. But that's finite. That's the whole thing. Anybody else have any uh, success with this? Well, I, I had the same thing that Anna had. I had that kind of feeling that this was fine, it would go on forever, and I would go on forever, and then it was forever. I mean, that was the thing, and I felt I was imagining, or doing what I thought of, is imagining infinity. But again, if you analyze it, you're getting a portion of it. See, this depends on what you mean by imagining. 
Okay. Maybe this is imagining. You know, mm-hmm. if it isn't to, to you. Okay, let's be more precise then. Can you get an image of infinity? An image is just sort of the great cloud. That's the image I have of it. Of infinity is this gray clouds. Gray clouds, did you yes. say? Gray clouds. Okay. Look again. Okay. And let's everybody look at gray clouds. Do you see all the gray cloud of infinity? Not in my head, no. No. I know there's more. Okay. You know there's more. This is very interesting, but you can't grasp it. That's my point with the imagination. You can't get an image of it. It's just like the moving. You move, and then you say, oh, well, then I could just keep going moving. You can get a field of gray, and you can say, well, I can just sort of, you know, uh, extrapolate and say, well, it goes on forever, so to speak. But we really can't make an image of infinity. Now imagine finite space. Imagine a barrier in space, whether it's a wall or a sphere or something. You can't actually imagine finite space, can you? Because there has to be something on the other side of that barrier. Can you imagine a finite space with nothing on the other side? I mean, do, do this like a child. Close your eyes. You, there you are. Uh, do what uh, Anna did. You come to this wall. Now, you can't say that's the end of space because what's on the other side of it? It's funny here. You can't imagine all of infinity. You cannot encompass and grasp all of infinity. But neither can you imagine uh, really something completely finite in terms of space. Because in a certain sense, you know that there must be more on the other side of it. Is everybody following this? Let me try it with numbers. In mathematics, they use this symbol to represent infinity. Now just take uh, a simple infinity, infinite integers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, like space. You'd go on counting. What is infinity. What number is it? It's not a number, it's just an idea. Well, all the other numbers, I can go one, two, three, four, and I can tell you properties of them and all that, but what about infinity? What you could say is that whatever number you can think of, it's more than that. Very good. One way to think of infinity is to write it n plus one. Whatever, this is like trying to imagine the barrier in space, right? Whatever number you could think of, 100 billion, trillion, zillion, you can say, well, those must be 100 trillion, billion, zillion, plus one. And if I said 100 trillion, billion, zillion, plus one, then I'd say, well, there must be 100 trillion, billion, zillion, two. I can't actually, uh, I can't conceive that numbers could be finite, and yet I don't know what this is. I can't specify this the way I can specify these. Let me give you another example that now relates somewhat to what uh, Lao Tzu was trying to describe and what uh, Kashmir Chauvism is trying to describe and what Dionysius is trying to describe. Let's take the symbol for infinity, minus one. 
what would that equal? Supposing I subtract one from infinity, what do I get? N. N? Okay, well, so what does N equal? <laughs> In this case, what does N equal? Infinity. Right. Supposing I subtract two from infinity. Supposing I subtract any number, N, from infinity. So it's kind of like the Tao, right? Use will never exhaust it. The myriad creatures can come out of it, and yet it still remains infinity. Whatever operation I make on this in terms of adding or subtracting, supposing I add one to infinity, still have infinity, unchanged. There's a, another way to look at this, or let's get a little bit more specific. Let's ask the question, what is one? What's a number? We were talking earlier, what's a thought? What's a number? Something we've all agreed on. Okay, what have we agreed? We've agreed that that will stand for a certain amount of whatever. That's all it is. It's just that we've agreed that that number stands for a certain amount of whatever. Uh, okay, what's an amount? The pile that somebody stuck on the middle of the road at one stage. Okay. Said, we'll call that one. Ah, okay, very good. Right? All right, here's the pile. <laughs> That's one. That's one. We uh, all agreed that that'll be one. Okay, but... We all agreed a rose will be a rose. Okay. And not a blue. But is it really? Now, let's... <laughs> it's differentiation. Ah, very good. It has to do with differentiation. Let's get a little bit more abstract. I think most of you have seen what's called the number line. And one a common way to think of numbers in mathematics and geometry is to take a line and divide it up and assign a number. Has anybody seen something that looks like that? If you've ever read a graph? Yeah, but you left half of it off. We have to have this the minus sign. No, no, no. I'm just working with positive integers here. We don't want to get too far. Okay. Now, what is this? This is interesting. It's been a problem for mathematicians because traditionally, the most traditional way of looking at it is to think of one as referring to a point, a single point on the line. But what's a point geometrically, mathematically here? That has no mass and takes up no space. There's no dimensions. It has no dimensions. That's what a point is mathematically. Right. So it's nothing. <laughs> That's right. It's a nothing with distinction, though. Well, we've named a nothing. distinction that we agreed the pile would be. Well, let's, let's hold. We're <laughs> going to get back to the pile here. But just in terms of our concept, it, it refers to nothing. That's right. I mean, to say a point is to say a, a, a dimensionless, massless Nothing. It's, it has no, no space. No, and no space. No attributes. And actually, then if we think we now have a, a kind of a limit, if we look at all the points between, let's call this zero and one, how many points are in this line? Infinite points. Because they're all conceived the way you think of it geometrically, they're all right next to each other, but since they don't take up any space, if you add a point to another point to another point, you don't start getting a string of beads. You're adding nothing to nothing to nothing.
there are all sorts of problems with it, thinking of it this way. For instance, if we started counting points, you'd never get to one. If you thought of moving from here to here, it's like trying to count to infinity. If you want to get to infinity of numbers and you start counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you're never going to get there. How we get from zero to one is by some sort of leap. We just say, okay, one, bingo. If we stop thinking of it as a point and think of it the way a famous mathematician Didikant thought of it, as a cut. We're getting closer. Again, it's nothing, but it's a distinction. It's a pause. A pause. Well, even a pause now, you got to be careful. If I go, oh, oh. Pause means stop. It's a stop. It's a stop, but doesn't have any space in it, <coughs> the way a pause in speaking would. You could measure a pause. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing's good. Not even space. The absence of space. Okay? So, we can think of numbers as a bare distinction that itself isn't real. doesn't have anything to it. Now, let's step out here and translate this into a little bit uh, more of the realm that we're used to. Let's think of this blackboard as an infinite plane. A plane meaning a flat surface that goes on forever, just like we're trying to imagine this space here, right? And let's make a distinction in this space. Let's draw a simple circle. Now, this circle encloses this space, and yet does it diminish the infinity of the plane at all? It's just like numbers, isn't it? I mean, I can do any sort of number of circles here, forms, and I still have infinite space. I could chop this space up countless ways, no end to chopping up, and I never diminish the space. I don't even diminish the space by the distinction if we think of an abstract distinction. I've had to draw a circle here, but really this dimension of the circle, just the line part, has no dimension in pure geometry. It has a one linear dimension, but it has no thickness is what I'm trying to say. So I haven't even covered up any space the way I have to do on a blackboard. I can imagine infinite space, and I can imagine infinite forms, and I don't lose anything of the space. And I can keep on begetting these forms. Now, let's notice also something else about form. Now, I'm going to draw on the blackboard uh, with my great artistic skill here, a human form something that's going to represent a human form anyway. Now, notice that this boundary, and I don't have any form unless I've drawn a boundary, I've made a distinction. 
that this boundary creates now an inside and outside. Now, when you look at that, notice how your eye, your attention, is automatically attracted to the form and the blackboard sort of drops away. But truly speaking, this boundary joins as much as it divides. It both joins and divides. You can't say, just like the paradox, you can't say it only separates something out, it also joins the inside to the outside. I cannot get rid of the outside. They are fused along this boundary. So much so that if I move this boundary, I get my little man here to drop his hand, I've not only changed the form of the inside, but I've changed the form of the whole outside space. The outside world follows the inside world perfectly in the change. There's not the slightest gap. There's not the slightest lag. You see what I mean? I raise my hand and the whole world changes. It's not a causal sort of thing where I do this and then something happens. Just by doing it, the world and I change together. I cannot separate them. So we can start to get at this paradox and we can start to see ourselves a little bit in this paradox of separating and joining. What separates also joins. All distinctions separate and join. And we think of those two things as different in our minds. And yet they are really one. You said I'm driving out here? Let's look at... Uh, the essence of this. What is the content? What is the content of this form that I've drawn on the blackboard here? Let's just give this a name. H, human. What's the content? What's inside it? It's blackboard. Well, it can be. well then it's a blackboard. But whatever is that, that infinite plane that you've got behind it, that's what H has to be. Right. So the content of this What's inside the form is exactly what's the content of what's outside the form. It's blackboard. Right? Does everybody see that? Now let's get really concrete here and, and let's come down to earth and everyday reality and stop all this nonsense and go back to that pile of, and you know what, it was on the road. <laughs> Let me... Well, I hope my feet don't smell too badly. Let me take off a sock. This is a little exercise uh, that you find in Buddhism under the story of the chariot, but I'm going to use a sock because I don't have any chariots around, but I do have a sock. And I just want to pretend for a moment that the sock I'm holding up is a wool sock. It'll make it a little bit more interesting. Now, here I have your pile, right? Now, this is something real and concrete and solid and never mind all this nonsense. But what is this? Let's say that actually this sock was woven by a very artful weaver from one thread, one thread of wool, right? So that I could go, here's a little, here I see that thread sticking up right there, right? And that I could pull this thread 
And if I pulled it, I could stretch it back out and, and have this long one thread of wool. Now, what happened to the sock? Where is the sock? What was the sock? Wasn't the sock merely the temporary form of that one thread? You know, I, I doubled it up and I did all this, and so the sock was just a form of this thread. You see what I mean? And it's changed form because it's nothing. Well, I pulled it away, and that form vanished. That form is no longer here. Where did that form come from? And where did it go? It's like the question, where do thoughts come from? Where do they go? Well, that's what I mean, because the fact that it's nothing. Right. It's the form is, is actually not real. Right. doesn't really have any existence. All that really exists is this thread, this piece of wool. But what is this thread of wool? It's also form. Well, if I look at it carefully, I would find it's made up of all these little fibers, wouldn't I? Have any of you spun wool? Or tried to? It's not that easy. You take the hair off a sheep, and you have this spinning wheel, and you send it through, and you know you have to keep the tension just right, and it spins out this, this long thread. So if I take this, now this uh, thread, and I start to pull it apart, what do I get? What? Lint. Lint, <laughs> right, lint. <laughs> okay, yeah, wool. I mean, I get a little hair, so they're sheep hairs. Well, now we've finally reached our pile. The thread now was just the form of all these little hairs. That didn't really have any reality to it. Now, I take one of these hairs, and I examine this under a very powerful microscope, and I see, well, this is just a form of molecules. Who, who took some biology? Do you know what the hair molecules made of? I don't Protein. know. Oh, yes, that's right. You're a chemist, aren't you? Protein. So the and now I say, wait a minute. The hair is just a form of protein. So we keep going this way. And in our culture, up until the beginning of the century, we thought, well, aha, we get down to atoms, and then we have finally reached our pile. Atom means indivisible. And up to the turn of the century, they thought that there was a little marble, that all this world was made up of little, tiny, indivisible marbles. Well, we learned, perhaps to our sorrow, that atoms aren't indivisible. They're very divisible, like at Hiroshima. And atoms are made up of subatomic particles, electrons and so forth and so on. Now, suddenly we branch off into quantum mechanics, which I'm not going to do because these subatomic particles themselves in the quantum mechanical description of the universe have no existence apart from consciousness. But even if we didn't have quantum mechanics, as the Greeks knew long ago, and the Greeks never bought the atomism and the materialism of Democrates and so forth, because it was absurd to them. Why would you just suddenly stop arbitrarily with a, one little marble? Couldn't you cut that in half? And could you cut that in half? And couldn't you cut that in half? Do you see what I mean? We never get down to anything but a distinction. The form. And whenever we unravel the form, we find another form under it. So it's like, 
the old story about someone who was giving a lecture to a, a Western audience about the Hindu cosmology. And in the Hindu cosmology, the world rests on something, and something else rests on something, and something else rests on the back of a turtle. And so the lecturer asked the audience, and what does the turtle rest on? And a woman in the audience raised her hand, she says, I know. And he says, you do? And she says, yeah, it's turtles all the way down. Well, <laughs> it's form all the way down. And yet, when we ask what is form, form is nothing but a distinction. It doesn't have any reality. It's imaginary. It's just a form. So now let's go back to the Kashmir Shosen description here. What is Shakti? Shakti is the power of imagination, of consciousness. Shakti produces this world out of consciousness by making distinctions in consciousness and making countless distinctions, all sorts of distinctions, a riot, a play of distinctions. Notice this is not negative at all, this power of imagination. This is the creative power of consciousness. This is what consciousness does. The problem comes not from Shakti, the power of imagination, but from our delusion that these are real. In Hindu tradition, this is Maya. Maya is not Shakti. Maya is falling under the spell of this world, not understanding what this world really is. In the West, it's sin. The true meaning of sin is ignorance, missing the mark, not understanding. So, what does this tell us about our own spiritual path and practice? All of you are going to walk out of here, and you're going to think, perhaps this was interesting, perhaps it was kind of dull, whatever. But you're going to go out there, and an hour later, you're going to be back inside this form. There's my little man drawn on the blackboard again. Back inside your boundary. Our problem on a spiritual path is to get to know this in terms of ourselves, to actually experience it. This is why the great uh, commandment of all spiritual paths is know thyself. That's what Plato said, know thyself. Whoso knoweth himself knoweth his Lord is the watchword of Sufi mysticism. In Buddhism, the leading instruction is there is no self, anatman. That mean, meaning there is no separate I, ego, self. It's just a form. But there's a trick here, and they spell it out very explicitly in Buddhism. It's very important to know, to observe what you think is yourself. This isn't a turning away from the boundary or floating off into woo-wee land or something. Look at the boundary. Look for the boundary. Whenever you feel a strong sense of self, that's when you want to be most observant, most mindful. There is an appearance, certainly. 
But what is its nature? What is its essence? If you start on this quest for self, persistently looking, when you say, I, 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 I this, I that, what do you mean? And go try to find what is the referent of that term I. You will eventually discover there is really nothing there, nothing definite. There's shifting forms that are constantly shifting. It's the realization of this, the recognition of this, not just the philosophical thought of it. It's that aha, that gnosis, that is the discovery in your own experience of what these mystics have been talking about. Without a doubt. And then something very funny happens. You've been identifying your true nature, your essence, who you really are with this distinction, this outward form as I've drawn on the blackboard here, this boundary. And when you realize that this is nothing but a distinction, appearance, in consciousness, the identification shifts from identifying with the distinction to identifying with the blackboard. And the blackboard is like consciousness. Pure consciousness. It's everywhere, and it's nowhere. You can no more be imagined than infinite space. It's not a question of imagining it. It's knowing that you are it. And in fact, this is why in the highest teachings, there is no talk of arriving someplace. You'll find mystics talking about aiming for realization, enlightenment, and so forth. Those are relative teachings. But the ultimate teaching is <coughs> there is no arrival anyplace. It's just realizing what's always been. There's no attainment in that sense. It's just saying, oh, it's been like this for all eternity. This has always been the truth of things. In a certain sense, nothing has changed. This is why when the Buddha was asked by Shibuti, O noble one, in achieving incomparable enlightenment, did you not attain the least little thing? And the Buddha answered, no, Shibuti. When the Buddha attained incomparable noble enlightenment, he attained not the least little thing. Therefore, it's called incomparable noble enlightenment. Again, paradox. In one sense, we're, we have a goal on a spiritual path. What is enlightenment? What is this realization? In the other sense, the goal is to see there is no goal. Paradox upon paradox. Okay, well, that's my talk for this morning. So you're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library.